Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Some of you might have recognized that song. That is an instrumental version of a song called My Life Song Sings to You. It has something to do with what I wanted to share today. Uh, as I was thinking about what to share, a particular phrase came into my mind that I heard one time, read one time. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you and all the world. Simple words, profound words, words that sat on a shelf in my room in a book written there, untouched, collecting dust for 10 years, but words that eventually reached one. As I thought about what to share today as part of this series that we've been in to tell the world, um, I first, my first thoughts were, after what we heard uh, Abdu Marina, Alicia Wood share, and Stuart McAllister, I figured I probably could just walk up here and say amen and just walk away. And that'd probably be enough because we have gotten some great stuff out of what they've been sharing. But I felt there was something that uh, connected with that that I wanted to share with you, and it has a little bit to do also with my story and also what I'm calling this message today. Tell the world, yes, but tell one. You know, because we, we really can't change the world, can we? We're just not in that position. Um, but we can, we can tell one. We can change one life, maybe. And through that, maybe touch the world. My story is something I don't often get to share. Um, for many of you know me, know me as a member of this community. You know me as a pastor here. I didn't start there, though. Um, it's a different place that I began many years ago, and so many of you have not heard my story as a NASCAR driver and a CIA agent of the past. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to get serious now, I promise you. No, my story um, began at a place where I was in a Christian home. I, it was a home of Christian background. My parents were faithful parents. They were good parents. I really, frankly, had enough there that could have brought me to the answers that uh, one would seek in life. But that wasn't where I was going. See, every one of us as individuals, we have to come to the answers of life by ourselves, don't we? We, have to, it, we can't inherit faith from our parents or our grandparents. We don't inherit answers from the people around us, coworkers or otherwise. We have to explore and search those things out ourselves. And if we're going to meet someone, we have to meet them ourselves. And so for me, that was a situation where I... I was beginning to question things. Questions are not a bad thing. They're a good thing. As long as we're willing to question our questions, you know, and as long as we're willing to um, be skeptical about our skepticisms, right? But if we're open-minded, it can be a good thing. For me, I was, I was questioning my questions. I was doubting my doubts. I was one of those people always asked things like that. I was a doubting Thomas type. I really appreciated when Alicia shared about, about Thomas from the scripture because I've always identified with Thomas. 
his life verse, something he said to Jesus uh, later in, in his life was something that has always identified with me and I keep it very close every day uh, in, my, in my office. Um, so anyway, that's a long story short. I was one of those types. And so I asked a lot of questions and I began to slide away, kind of checking out everything, not just Christianity, but checking out the various ways people try to answer the questions of life. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, A, a to Z, with Christianity somewhere in the middle, right? I, I was looking at all of those and trying to see what, what explains the life and the world I find myself in. Through that process, there were some very faithful people there was a point at which I was questioning things about the Bible, and there were two individuals that would come to my college room every apartment every you know, three, three weeks or so, three to four weeks, Dave and Pete. They were from a local church, and they just were doing their part about telling one. And they came there, and they would often share with me from the, from the Bible. I had many questions, as you can imagine, and I, w- I knew just enough about the Bible really to be dangerous at that point, dangerous especially to myself. And so I would try to lob these questions at them to stump them or to, you know, give myself enough room to wiggle out, if I'm going to be honest. They were very faithful, though, and they understood the scripture well enough that they could answer those questions or go back and find answers and bring those thoughts back to me. So we carried that on for some time. They were part of my life. Later on, I began to ask more questions about how would Christianity, how would faith in Jesus really answer some of the deepest struggles, questions of justice, questions of pain and suffering, uh, questions of meaning. And there were people in my life that came along and provided thoughts, perspective, answers, insights to those things. Never to force or coerce, just here's something to consider. And I'm very appreciative for those people. And then, of course, there were those that came along and displayed their character, and I'll get back to that, um, and their words and the way in which they approached those words and their tone and things of that nature that, that I can stand here today and say I was one that was reached. And that's really what I want to spend our time together today talking about. How do we reach one, especially in a world that is it's so challenging today? I think the three ways that we've kind of heard of from the past few weeks and those who shared with us, and I want to recap a bit, I would summarize as this. We reach, people, we reach one with, our, with, with the word. That's the scripture and our understanding of it. We reach one with the world, meaning our worldview. How do we view the world and answer the questions of the world? Can we do that? Because people are looking for answers to deep questions. And we reach one with our words, or in other words, the rhetoric we use. How do you talk to somebody? How do you share? How do you persuade? Everyone's persuading, but how do you persuade? in a way that is meaningful and rem- do people remember it, you know, good or bad, right? And so this is really the three areas, but that is a very big challenge today because in regards to the word, you'll find, I'm sure you've seen this, the scripture is denigrated today. We used to be in a culture about 50 years ago where your average pastor, priest, spiritual leader, something of that stripe was respected. The Bible was respected. Even if someone didn't believe it, you would find that they had a respect for it and saw it as an authoritative voice to not be you know, snuffed out, shipped off, laughed at. That is not really the case today. The very fundamentals of those things are all highly questioned, even denigrated. And so that's a challenge. When it comes to the world, the cultural worldview has been capsized. We're going to look at that. But we used to be in a culture in which we were immersed in a basic biblical worldview, the values derived from that understanding of the world. And so, frankly, Christians were able to um, kind of 
skate, I guess, if you would say. We were able to be carried along by the culture. We will not be carried along anymore. And if we don't understand and are prepared to deal with these areas, we will not be in the conversation. And so those are word and world, but also our words. Again, ridicule is the new rhetoric. I'm sure you've seen this from politician to blogger. It's ridicule, it is talk down, it is cancel, it is silence, it is name call, it is assume the worst. It is all of those things to shut down conversation before it begins. That is the natural tone. And, and, and that is mapped across the board. I've seen Christian people claim to be Christians do it. I've seen non-Christians, I've seen it across the board. So this is not an indictment pointing the finger out this way. We all need to take a look at ourselves in this. And so how do we deal with these three areas? How, how do we address these things? Well, I can't share it all, right? We, we, it's all our own journey to figure out. But I, I want to at least share a few ideas with you. Let's start with the idea of the word. Now, I'm going to read a couple of long scripture passes with you. There's only going to be two. You don't need to remember it all. There will not be a quiz on this, okay? I'm not going to reference every single point of it, but I want you to get the general gist of what was happening because the apostles were called by Jesus, and he charged them to bring the hope of, of, the, of the gospel to the world in their words. And they modeled this for us, and we see this in the book of Acts. And so one of the first things we see in Acts chapter 2 is the apostle Peter bringing the message of Jesus to a group of people who understood the Bible, had a respect for it, understood or at least respected its authority, had an understanding of God, and this is how he addressed it. So Peter stands up with the 11, those are the apostles, closest followers of Jesus, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. He said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. See, this was his audience, this was his group, people who understood that background. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. What's he talking about? The people at the time were experiencing this amazing ability where they were speaking and people were hearing them in their own languages. Even though those people didn't know those languages, they were hearing the gospel professed in their language. Well, some people didn't buy it. Maybe their ears weren't open enough to hear it. So whatever they heard, it was gibberish to them. And they said, these people are just drunk. By the way, today when you bring the message out there, there are people who are going to act like you're on something to talk about how Jesus is an answer to life. It's going to happen. Respond soberly. Don't give them reason to think that you're a drunk maniac, okay? Don't give them reason to think these things. Respond soberly. So he goes on to say, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You, were the, you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, my body will rest in hope because you won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And he goes on. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently, the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to us, with us to this day. But he was a prophet. When he said these words, he knew God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on the throne, king of the world. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that's the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. He was raised. God has raised him to life, and we are all witnesses of it. For David didn't ascend to heaven. 
And yet he said about the Messiah, he said, the Lord God sent to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He is going to be exalted in authority. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. Boy, that's a mouthful, but it's a good mouthful. Because what Peter is just nailing here is the whole message of the hope of Jesus Christ and what God has done to establish him uniquely for who he was. But here's what I want you to pick up mainly out of all of this. Peter, in that whole address, appealed to Scripture three times, which means he knew the Scripture. He understood the Scripture. He knew how to apply the Scripture when he was quoting the prophet Joel, when he was quoting Psalm 10, when he was, uh, uh, Psalm 16, when he was quoting Psalm 110. He knew the Scripture, and he was able to bring it to their understanding. And I fear that is something we're largely losing today in the body of Christ in the church. There was one occasion where someone misunderstood a scripture reference and it actually worked out pretty good. There was an old lady who was walking along and a thief ran up from behind her, snatched her purse and went running. And before he could get away, she just shouted the first thing she could think of and a scripture came to her mind. So she just said, stop, Acts 2.38. She's quoting the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38. So she said, stop, Acts 2.38. Which she knew, of course, is the verse that says, repent and be baptized in, Jesus, in the name of Jesus for your forgiveness of your sins, right? To her shock, the thief stopped immediately, put the purse down slowly, lifted his hands up, and got down on his knees and just stayed there. She was amazed. So she calls the police over. The policeman comes over. She tells him what happened. The policeman goes and puts the cuffs on the guy. She, he looks at her and he says, what did you say? She said, I just yelled out a scripture verse, Acts 2, verse 38, to which the thief turned around and said, oh, I thought you said you had an Acts in 238s. <laughs> so that worked out in that occasion that this guy completely misunderstood the scripture. But I'll tell you what, that's not unique to thieves like that. Sadly, we're seeing this happen even in the, in, in the church. I saw somebody recently who shared this illustration of something he actually saw. This is not a joke now. Somebody in a church wanted to know if he should date the one a girl on the worship team whose name was Grace. And while he was reading the Bible, he saw a verse that said, Grace be with you. <laughs> so he took it as a sign. Now, I don't know. Maybe they'll work out fine. But that's not how we read the Bible. Okay? Uh, Gordon Fee, a great Bible scholar and teacher, said, A scripture can never mean what it never meant. We need to treat the word of God with responsibility. And this isn't just reserved for, I mean, you think about this. There are people right now who are taking on positions of responsibility. I saw a guy recently, he is a main, he's a, he's a pastor of a mainline, historically solid denomination. I heard him giving a six-minute message on John 3.16. Anybody know the verse? God so loved the world, gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I saw this person in the process of six minutes so deconstruct that verse that he actually said that verse has nothing to do with us uh, having any evil or sin in us and needing forgiveness. The verse actually means that we are a part of God and we just need to realize that we're divine. I, I don't know, maybe he forgot to read a few verses past that. But if I'd play it for you if I had the time. But it's shocking to see that this is what's happening, even at the level of people who are taking on the responsibility of teaching the word, and this is what we're, we're doing with it. We need to be responsible. Peter was responsible with how he handled the word, and his listeners knew it. 
Many years ago when Dave and Pete visited me, they were responsible with the word. They didn't have all the answers. They weren't Bible scholars. Many times their answer was, we don't know, but we'll get back to you. And they came back and they said, have you considered that? And frankly, many times more than not, I hadn't considered what they brought back and it opened up my horizons. This is what we need to do. We need to be, take the time to be responsible with the word so we're prepared. And how about the world? Now, Paul, a few chapters later in the book of Acts, we see him in a very different situation, different audience now. So let's read that, second of the longest one, second of two, and we'll see what he does. So it says, they, then they took Paul, they brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus. That was a group of people, an area in Athens where a group of people met and thought through thoughts and told the people about kind of how people were reasoning out the world. So they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. By the way, um, don't fool yourself. In today's world, if you have faith in Jesus and that's your idea, you are carrying the strange idea. Like I said, it used to be a culture where that was actually more a predominant idea. Now it is the strange idea. Understand it's strange in the ears of some, which means we've got to do a little bit more than rather just be presumptive towards them, right? And so Paul begins. He stands up in the meeting and says, people of Athens, that was the city they were in, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant. Sounds like a hard word. But he's basically saying you don't understand who that God is. Ignorant of the very thing you worship there, and that's the one I'm going to proclaim to you. Now notice, how did Paul start? Did he start by saying, you guys are all wrong. You need to figure this out. Repent or die. I mean, he, no, he said, you know what? I can see that there's something that he, he established common ground. Do you see that? He started by saying, look, there's something that you and I agree on. You care about these questions. And I see you're religious. You, you realize there's an authority. There's something supernatural out there. That was Paul's audience. That would he, that's what he was dealing with. In our own way, we can establish common ground. Maybe there are, are people that, that, that don't understand why uh, of, of an issue of injustice. Well, let's understand, at least tell them it's good that they care about justice. Then we can talk about what biblical justice is or what justice from God is all about. Or people who are going through pain and suffering, we can empathize with that pain and suffering. Have we ever been there? And we can talk about how, what can bring answers to that pain and suffering. Or maybe they just want to just completely throw away the Bible. And as I was at that point with those guys years ago in my college room, just say, you know what, I don't think any of this stuff explains anything. I'm a proud skeptic. Maybe I'm even a proud atheist because I care about what's true, what facts are. Well, you know what, then you can affirm for them it's good to care about what's true. And rather than just believing lies, then we can talk about what's true and not, right? But there's a, a place that we can start. And that's what Paul was doing here. So he affirms that for them. But then he goes on and he begins to lay out this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. See the common ground? He's quoting people they know. But he's also laying out a worldview here. Stuart talked about this last week. 
Colossians chapter one, a whole different thing where Paul lays out the gospel and he lays out the worldview. Who God is, who created the world, why he did it, what's the problem with the world, what's the solution? We actually did a series on that very chapter and verse several weeks ago called This is the Gospel. And we pointed out in that that it, that, that it is a, at its heart, it's a worldview. It's a way to explain the world, not just a belief. And so Paul's laying this all out to them there, and we need to be able to be prepared to do that. But there's more going on here because the audience Paul is dealing with is still not the audience we're dealing with today. But let's finish his verse. So he goes on and says, Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, stone, you know, idols, stupid things that we make, an image made by human design. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people to repent. He set a day when he will judge the world with justice. You see, God cares about moral values and issues. By the man he has appointed, he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, people won't always receive what you say. Okay. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And those were the ones that Paul stuck around with. Because maybe one wants to hear more on the subject. So all of this speaks a little bit more to how approach uh, what I would call a God-centered culture. This was not a biblical-centered culture. They didn't understand the scripture, but God was approaching a God-centered culture. They at least understood there was a creator, something, somehow. The problem today is we are now in a secular-centered culture. There is no recognition at bottom for the most part that there's a God beneath it all. You've heard the word deconstruction a lot. I want to take it one level deeper than you heard before. Because Alicia hit on it so great. She said, deconstruction is like you take a puzzle, you pull all the puzzle pieces apart. You net it all down, right? You question the questions, you question the assumptions. She says, but the problem is once you do that, you can't just leave it all in pieces. You need to construct something. If you're going to deconstruct, you have to reconstruct. Otherwise, what do you have? So the goal should always be to figure something out that works, not just to dismantle everything. And that's a great point. And this is why it's important to understand, because at the bottom here, this is what deconstruction is and why it's been so, frankly, toxic to this conversation about life. Let me give you the the definition of deconstruction. It might be hard to read there. I'm going to read it for you. This is how it starts. Humans, through biological evolution develop the capacity to impose psychological constructs of meaning upon their world as a survival mechanism. Did you follow that? Humans who evolved created ideas of meaning, created ideas of truth, God, whatever, as a way of surviving, as a way to protect themselves. That's it. So now it goes on. In other words, meaning, as in the ultimate meaning of things, is a human psychological creation. It's not the discovery, a divine revelation, or an absolute truth. So God isn't revealing anything. It's just something that you're creating in your psyche. Anything that you claim has meaning. It gets worse. Human language at best communicates not absolute truth, but how a certain individual conceives of truth at a certain moment in time. Kind of biased by his culture, political, religious, environmental, experiential influences. No absolute truth. Just how you perceive it. So language can't communicate anything absolute. And here's the real clincher. 
Therefore, deconstruction asserts that philosophers, theologians, anybody who writes to us about what reality might be, right? They all consult written works of the past in vain. Works like the Bible or others. They consult them in vain when they're trying to discover absolute truth or meaning. They're just encountering what people thought in words, but it's not real. Real is what they make. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing why this can be a serious problem? If, if I define language and, and language then defines reality, so I can make any word mean what I want it to mean, and then that now defines reality, not reality defining the words I use and how I describe something real. But now I'm going to use, create language and create my own thoughts, which is then going to define reality. How dangerous is that? I saw an example recently of a person who has been medically diagnosed to be obese, which means it's dangerous to their life. They're, they're actually developing heart disease. In response, they posted a video saying, my meaning, my word, is not obese. I am anorexic. Therefore, I should eat. This was serious. This is not a joke. Now think about where that goes. What they're actually saying is that's the new reality and that's my reality. That's my meaning behind the word. And so now we have to see reality the way they have described it, which means you have to now celebrate that person being underweight while they eat and develop heart disease until they probably die from it. Yeah. Or flip that around. That means that the person suffering with anorexia, rather than seeing that there's something wrong based on the objective design of how their body was created, instead, that person can look and say, I'm not anorexic, I'm obese which means you and I now have to celebrate them not eating while they starve to death. Do you see where this goes? Do, do you see why this is actually such a deception? Even It can be spiritual, a deception? Because at the heart of deconstruction, it's trying to say there is no true and false. It, it, they call it deconstructing all binaries. Something is true, something is false. No, we're going to deal away with that. But see, so you can't deconstruct the whole reality like that because at the heart of reality, whether you agree with it or not, the lowest common denominator is there is the creator and there is creation. There is God and creation. Those two are opposite. God is not creation and creation is not God. And you'll never deconstruct that binary. And the more you try to rip that apart, the more you will do what Nietzsche said, wipe away the horizon. How did we wipe? There's no reference point anymore for life, for meaning, for, for living for understanding, it just disappears. And that is the issue. That's where we find ourselves today. In fact, this is the opposite, just so we need to understand this. If you're coming at the world from a biblical worldview, then you're seeing it like this at the top. You see that an objective God made an objective creation according to an objective plan that we must objectively align ourselves with, even when it's difficult. That makes sense out of life. But if you see it from a deconstruction-based worldview, then we subjectively create a subjective, that means internal, not external, I define it, subjective plan in a subjective world where God isn't even a subject anymore. Do you see how opposite these are? Do you see why we're increasingly finding it difficult to talk with anyone about the hope that we might find each one of us in Jesus? This is the challenge. I wish I could tell you that's an easy challenge to overcome, but, but it's not. 
It's going to take time. It's going to take understanding. How do we answer each question? How do we prepare to do that? How do we equip ourselves? How do we think it through? How do we pray it through? It's going to take all of those things. See, worldview is intensely practical. I mean, would you, would you rescue, think about this, would you rescue an innocent person who's defenseless and would die without your assistance? Would you do that? I think most people would say yes. Is that true whether they're in the womb or outside the womb? Oh, now it depends on worldview. You see, from a biblical worldview, we wouldn't look at that as any different because it's the same thing. It's an innocent, defenseless person, and we need to do what we can to protect that. But if our worldview is different, then we suddenly shift gears. And this is the challenge. I'm not here to argue on that issue today. I mean, there, did a great, there was a great message on that several weeks ago. Look it up. Okay, it's important. It was, it was very well balanced. But what I'm simply talking about is worldview is practical and it challenges us at the deepest level. And so the biblical worldview is here to answer the deepest questions of life. It answers questions like, look at what, 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 what Paul said. He said, God is appointing a time when he is going to deal and bring justice to the world. People care about justice, but what brings justice? What can guarantee us justice is going to come in the face of injustice ultimately in this world? Well, what did Paul say? What did Peter say? What was the main thing they brought through when they were talking to those people? This is how we know. Here is the proof of it. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are witnesses. Jesus is alive again. He will bring justice to injustice. He'll end suffering. This is who Jesus is. Yaroslav Pelikan said this statement. He said, if Christ is, has not risen then nothing else matters. If Christ has risen, then nothing else matters. That's the linchpin question. And so Jesus comes along and answers our issues where we're at in life. You see, people reached me with an understanding of Scripture. They reached me with que answering questions about a worldview. And that all brought me to the feet of Jesus. But I'll tell you what, the day that my wife and I sat in front of that doctor and found out that our son was diagnosed with autism and we would never have the future with him that we thought we were going to have, it all changes in that moment. In that moment, it's real. And you've been there, I'm sure, in your own way. In that moment, you can feel it, you can taste it, you can touch it. The cry for justice. The cry to, for, against pain and suffering and, and the yearning for a, a deep existential answer to that. Who will bring it? Well, it was in that moment that I could hold on to the resurrected Christ and know that there is a day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Christ makes sense out of suffering. There's a word written on this called Today and Tomorrow. It says this, no pleasure without pain, no joy without the sorrow, no sun without the rain, today, but not tomorrow. Tomorrow, not today, no peace that's never restless, no love without the hate, no life, a kind that's deathless. A future without trial beyond this realm of pain will welcome the arrival of those who know the way. Know him, Jesus, and know the way through life that's merely borrowed to life of fullest days, today and then tomorrow. Jesus brings the answers to life today and hope beyond the pain and the injustice today and then we'll bring it tomorrow for life of fullest days.
That is the deep answer to our questions. And so our worldview matters and our preparedness to share that with others matter. And I'm going to end with this. Our words. Because I lived through all that, I heard all of that, but I have to honestly say probably the thing I was most grateful for is the words in the heart in which people... Because remember, words are one thing, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's the heart that matters, not just the words we choose or prepare. Colossians 4, verse 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Do people sense the grace of God if they're in our presence? Do they taste the saltiness and savor of a good conversation? Or are they choking down acidic bile when they talk to us? That matters. I had a number of people that invested that way in my life. I have to say that out of all of those, one of those that I'm the most grateful for is my wife. I knew her before I was a Christian. And it was her kindness. And it was her patience and it was her faithfulness. It was her words. I know some of you right now who know my wife are thinking, what words? <laughs> See, I, the, the people who know just responded. <laughs> she doesn't speak a whole lot, but I like to call her E.F. Hutton. When Kate speaks, you listen. She's got a lot of wisdom that's stored up in a lot of faith. A lot better than a lot of my chatter. And that made a difference in who I am. That planted seeds that reached one. You may know people like that in your life that did the same. Maybe we should model those people. This word that we've been kicking around, apologist, okay, it's a great word because it talks about being prepared and having answers and all that. And that's what, you know, what we've heard in the last week. I, I, don't, I want you to get that word out of your mind. Go with this word. You're not an apologist building up walls, defenses, and things like this. You're an ambassador. An ambassador brings one together with another. It's our job to take one who doesn't know God and introduce him to who Jesus is and, and do our best to be one part of building a bridge between them. And if we can do that, then we're accomplishing what he called us to do. We can do it with character. We can do it with love. We can do it with empathy. We can hear and listen. We can do it with vulnerability. There's a proverb. It's not a biblical one, but it's a general one. I've always liked it. It says this, never trust a man until you can see his limp. Think about it. You can always overdo sharing how smart you are, how strong you are in character or morally, how tough you are, how invulnerable you are. You can always outdo, overdo that, but you can never overdo sharing with another your sin, your weakness, your need and thankfulness for receiving God's amazing grace. You can't overshare that. And so this is what we need to bring to a conversation. Jesus brought all of that. Results weren't guaranteed, not even for Jesus. Some of you may know the story of a rich young man that he said, there's one thing you lack. Just go do this and come follow me. And the man walked away. Not everybody is going to walk forward. Some will walk away. But some will walk forward.
Jesus loves you so much that he died for you and all the world. Those were words written in a Bible that sat on my shelf collecting dust for 10 years. It was given to me by my aunt. Simple woman, woman of faith, woman who many times sat with me and my cousin while we had sleepovers and tried to share with us about the love of Jesus and pray with us, and I was way too busy to listen. I was always the guy joking around, in my, giggling in my cousin's ear. I didn't think I heard any of it. But I did. I heard um, every bit of it, though I didn't know it at the time. And she never really got to see the results of that. She passed away from cancer many years later. But it was her faithfulness. Matthew 25 talks about being faithful. God said, be faithful with a few things. Be faithful in telling one. It was her faithfulness. It was Dave and Pete sharing to the best they could their understanding of Scripture. It was those who shared with me the answers to questions of how I could make sense of this world and how Jesus might do that. It was people like my wife with their words of kindness and their faithfulness, their gentle spirit that reached this one. You each are one. God reached you in some way. Alicia is one. Abdu is one. Stuart is one. And maybe one day in here, you'll reach one. Or maybe there's somebody in here that will, by telling one, that person will end up telling the world. You know, there's still some Billy Grahams out there. Who knows? Maybe it's one of you. But the most important thing is that we're faithful to one. So will we have the, the courage to take a step? Will we have the courage to prepare ahead of time to let God change us so much from the inside out that it's just going to, as my wife says, be so filled up that you overflow. You can't help it. It's not an easy thing, courage like that. I wrote something down here. John Shedd once said, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. Don't just stay safe in the harbor. Be willing to come out, risk a little. Walk with God. Just tell one. Maybe through that, we'll begin to tell the world. Father, it's a tough world. I think as Christians, we can honestly say that we're not even sure anymore how to talk to people and how to share. But Lord, we were once ones who didn't hear. And there may be some in here who have heard for the first time. And if so, you deserve that. That is to your credit. That is your hope that you bring. And we're thankful for it, just like we each are thankful for what you have given to us, the hope in Jesus. So, Lord, we don't approach this with, with arrogance. We don't approach this, God, with anything other than, as the old saying says, we just, we're just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. But, Lord, we're asking that you use us in that way. We're asking us that you, you live through us in that way and give us the courage to prepare, to be ready, and to listen, 
and to step into the moments when they happen that we might tell one so that your hope, God, can be shared in hearts that don't have it. That's our prayer, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And that brings us to the end. So you can stand. uh, There are going to be a couple of people up here for prayer if you seek it. Otherwise, God bless you. Let's go and let's tell one and tell the world.